Please stand with me in prayer as we come before the Lord. A gracious and patient God, thank thee for thy loving kindness to us, which is better than life. We thank thee, our Lord, that uh, we have been given the words of life. Uh, not that we might uh, become bored, not that we might uh, hear them and cast them away, not that we would be like the various uh, soils that Jesus gave in the parable that did not bring forth fruit that lasted, but that we would be those, Lord, who would be a good soil upon which the, the seed is sown, and there would be 30, 60, 100 fold that comes forth from it. Bless this time of study. Nourish our souls, we pray, and cleanse and wash us of our sins as we do approach thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, John 17, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So we arrive at chapter 17, and most recently, again, just very, very briefly, by way of review, uh, the Lord Jesus celebrated the Passover, instituted the Lord's Supper that evening, and continued afterwards to instruct his disciples, preparing them for his leaving them in chapters 14 through 16, giving them very important information uh, that they would need to know as he would not be with them. This is uh, the night, later on, the same night that Jesus offers this prayer in John 17 to the Lord to his father, uh, in which he will be betrayed by Judas, arrested uh, by the soldiers taken, and uh, a sham trial or trials in the plural before the Sanhedrin, uh, before Pilate, before Herod, that will occur the next morning. This uh, chapter, John 17, is a prayer. Uh, the entire chapter is, is a prayer of the Lord Jesus, an extended prayer. In fact, the uh, longest prayer that we have of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the next longest would be the, the Lord's Prayer, uh, found in Matthew chapter 6. But we don't have anything that comes close to the length of this prayer. Not that, not that how long a person prays is what is significant or how long Jesus prayed. He says he prayed all night. Uh, we don't have those prayers, 
recorded for us. But it's, but it's not simply the length of the prayer, but having a prayer this length, which basically shows, you know, what was on the Lord Jesus' heart? What, what was he thinking of? Who was he thinking of? And the prayer is one that he says uh, will glorify God, but he's thinking about not himself. He's thinking about his disciples. He's thinking about his beloved bride uh, that he's going to be um, leaving, at least physically, not spiritually, but physically leaving. And his heart right now is with his bride. That's where, that's what, again, even though his bride is going to uh, later on uh, desert him, flee out of fear. They're going to be running in different directions. Peter is going to deny even knowing the Lord Jesus. But where is his heart? His heart is with his bride. His love is for, for her. And he's praying for his bride. This uh, chapter, John 17, uh, in the, the last hours of John Knox's life before he passed into glory. This was uh, one of the sections, one of the places that he asked his wife uh, to read uh, before he died. Uh, so this was, would have been very much on his mind, Knox's mind, <clears throat> and I wonder why uh, he would want that chapter read because as I said it shows the love of Jesus for his bride uh, for John Knox for each of us who are his people that uh, shows how he intercedes uh, out of love for his people <clears throat> so this is really a, a glimpse into the glorious work of Jesus Christ as our great high priest. This is what he's doing uh, throughout our lives as his people, those whom he loves. He's praying for us. His prayers, again, are not uh, uh, prayers that are not answered. His prayers are always, he said his prayers are always answered. He said, the Father always answers his prayers. He always prays according to the will of God. Uh, therefore, again, his prayers are always answered. And, and so <clears throat> this, again, ought to encourage our hearts. This is what Jesus is doing on our behalf as our great high priest. We're not told where this prayer was <clears throat> prayed the specific location. Um, we know that at the end of chapter 14, they left the upper room, and so that uh, chapters 15 and 16, that instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples was uh, given outside of the upper room uh, where they celebrated the Passover and the Lord's Supper was instituted. But somewhere along uh, the way before arriving at the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, 
this prayer was uttered along with the previous instruction in chapters 15, uh, in chapters 15 and 16. Most likely, just as the instruction of chapters 15 and 16 was heard by the disciples, he was instructing them, most likely they also, when Jesus, it says in verse 1, lifted up his eyes to heaven, uh, that they heard his prayer as well. So it was not only the instruction that Jesus intended to benefit and to edify and to help his disciples before he went to the cross, was raised from the dead, uh, and ascended into heaven, but he wanted to instruct them also by means of the prayer that he offered uh, unto the Lord, his, unto the Father as well. <clears throat> the Apostle John, who was the human instrument of penning this, this gospel, was an eyewitness uh, to this prayer. And again, uh, it's very interesting to conceive that uh, as he is recording this, this prayer uh, in John 17, that, uh, that he can say, I, I actually heard uh, this final prayer of the Lord Jesus uh, that was uttered. In verse 1, <clears throat> Jesus begins, Father, the hour is come. The hour is come. First of all, he addresses God as his Father. And he addresses God as Father in a way that we cannot address God as Father. Uh, we cannot address God as Father in that sense because he is the only begotten Son. He has the same divine nature as the Father. He is the second person, or the Father is the first person of the Holy Trinity. The Son is the second person, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity. And so the Son, in this sense, and the Father have the same nature, uh, e the same eternal substance, equal in power and glory. We address God as Father not in the same way. Uh, we address God as Father as, as those who have been adopted, not the natural uh, son of God or a daughter of God, uh, we are adopted children. Jesus is the, is the son by nature, uh, not by adoption. We are adopted into the family of God. Now that's nothing to sneeze about at all. Uh, the fact that we are the adopted children of the living God. Um, there may not be in our uh, congregation, anyone who has an adopted child that I'm aware of, but uh, nevertheless, we probably know families that do have adopted children. And if those adopted children uh, are truly loved by their parents, they don't 
even if they know and should know that they are adopted, uh, they are not uh, treated by the parent uh, any differently uh, than those that uh, are the natural born children within the family. Uh, and I say that simply to, to indicate that the Bible teaches that we are, as adopted children, the heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Uh, we have, as the adopted children of God, we have that inheritance which the Father has bestowed upon the Son that has been purchased for us. Paul says that all things are ours in Christ Jesus. All things are ours. So again, let us consider the great honor and privilege that is ours as the adopted children of God. Let us, in coming into the presence of God, as we address him as Father, not just quickly skip over that title as if uh, you know it's just something that we have to utter like we utter in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer. Uh, let us consider the importance. Let us dwell and meditate. Praise God that we are his adopted children. Then Jesus says, <clears throat> the hour is come. <clears throat> So that hour has come, and it doesn't mean 60 minutes uh, when Jesus says the hour is come. He's not saying that in the next 60 minutes all of this is going to happen. Uh, that's again a biblical way of saying that this is about to happen very soon. Everything that uh, the world has been waiting for, everything that heaven has been waiting for, for the past 4,000 years up to that time, from the Garden of Eden, when it was the Lord Jesus that came in the cool of the evening, the second person, I believe, of the Holy Trinity that appeared to Adam and Eve and promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, would crush the enemy, would crush death, hell, sin, would crush all of that. From that time on, 4,000 years earlier from the time of the Lord Jesus in which he's praying this prayer, history has been waiting for this hour. Uh, nothing happens by accident in God's plan. Everything has been <clears throat> working toward this particular moment in history. The angels in heaven uh, are no doubt on the edge of their seats as it were, uh, those that are witnessing this, you know, as they come, because we know angels attended unto Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, he says he could have called 12 legions of angels uh, to, to rescue him. The angels are waiting. This is, this is, again, in redemptive history, this is the moment the hours come. No doubt, again, even though uh, angels are not omniscient, don't know all things, uh, only God does, 
And uh, though angels are not omnipresent everywhere at the same time as God alone is, um, yet they were, I believe, very much aware and awaiting this moment, even as the glorified saints in heaven that had already left this earth, had already died and, and gone to be with the Lord in paradise in heaven. Um, they, like the angels, are not omniscient nor omnipresent, but I'm sure heaven was filled with a kind of silence about what was about to happen. Um, the whole purpose and reason for creation for God to glorify himself, uh, to glorify his justice, to glorify his mercy and grace in Jesus Christ was about to be realized. So this is, this is the, the time, uh, the moment of all moments, the hour of all hours. This prayer of the Lord Jesus, I, I submit to you, is very instructive because Jesus, he says, uh, uh, in verse 1, glorify thy son as, and that thy son also may glorify thee. Was there any doubt in, in Jesus' mind that the Father was going to glorify the Son? Did Jesus question or wonder? I, I really hope the Father is going to glorify me as he said he's going to do. Uh, or I, I, you know, uh, I'm not absolutely sure that he's going to, but I... I I certainly hope he'll do so. Was there any doubt uh, in uh, the, the mind of the Lord Jesus that he, Jesus, would glorify the Father? Weren't these, uh, weren't these events certain to happen? Weren't they ordained to happen from all eternity? Then why is Jesus praying that the Father would glorify the Son, and that the Son, that He, the Son, would glorify the Father. If this was all certain to happen, if there was no doubt that it was going to happen, I believe He was certain. I, I believe there wasn't any doubt that what about what was about to happen was going to happen. And yet Jesus is praying for that which is certain to come. I think that it, it's instructive to us <clears throat> because it tells us that prayer <clears throat> uh, is important, instructive, uh, that God, though he has ordained everything, and he had not, Jesus, or the Father has not only ordained the events around Christ's life, everything about our life has been ordained. Um, there's, there's nothing that happens by accident. And yet we're told likewise to pray. Now we may not know as Jesus knew what was going to happen with that kind of certainty, but we can be assured that there are no accidents with God, no surprises. God ordains everything in our lives. There is a purpose, there's a reason a holy purpose, a holy reason for everything that happens. And yet we likewise ought to be praying even though those things are fixed. Those things uh, that God has ordained will come to pass. Yet we ought to pray concerning everything uh, that God would do in our life. 
So we don't pray in order to change God's mind. Uh, that's not the purpose of prayer. Uh, the purpose of prayer, the fact that Jesus was praying that God would glorify him and that he would glorify the Father was, was indicative again of the relationship that the Father and the Son had with one another. It was, uh, prayer is given to us, again, not to change God's mind. It's not given for God's benefit. It's given for our benefit. It's a means of grace to us to strengthen our faith, our hope, to encourage us, to comfort us, and uh, to enjoy blessed fellowship and communion with the Lord. For example, we've been on the Lord's Day talking about certain prophecies that the Lord will bring to pass because He's prophesied they would come to pass. Certain promises that he has made, that he will bring the nations to himself, that he will bring Israel to himself. Those are certain to happen. Should we pray for them? Should we pray, God call the Jews to thyself. God bring the nations uh, into the church and Israel into the church of Jesus Christ. Rescue and save uh, all of the nations of the earth. Of course we should. Uh, so again, we don't pray because things are uncertain to occur. We pray and call out in the name of the Lord uh, for the benefit of strengthening our own faith in those promises in those truths. We pray to be edified, built up, to enjoy blessed communion with Jesus Christ and with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Prayer, because it is, um, because it is conversation uh, with God, uh, it puts us into a, not a distant, but a near and close communion and fellowship with the Lord, in which we, uh, as his children, seek him, praise him, thank him, confess him, or confess to him, and seek petitions, uh, supplications, needs, both physic physically and spiritually. The idea here, still in verse 1, glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. The glory of God uh, is the chief end of man. Uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Therefore, uh, as we pray, and again, we have to stop ourselves because we are very quick. Uh, I think, I speak for myself, but I, I think we're very quick simply to get to the things that are pressing upon us uh, in our prayer. Simply, you know, to appeal to God. God wants to hear those things 
for sure. Um, but I think that we need, again, as we hear the prayer of the Lord Jesus, we need to realize there's something far more important than our needs. And that's the glory of God. That God be honored, that God be exalted, that uh, he be honored in us, our family, our church, our nation, this world. I dare say that, <clears throat> that in seeking the glory of God, even over our own glory or our, uh, our own needs, uh, seeking God's glory first and foremost is the place that we will find peace. It's the place we'll find joy. And when I say joy, I don't necessarily mean laughter, you know, that kind of expression, but joy within, uh, that we, we know everything uh, is, is working out and shall work out according to God's purpose and plan and, and his glory and peace, joy, and contentment. It comes, again, from us realizing that uh, we're here, first and foremost, to glorify Him. When we seek, when we seek um, contentment and joy and peace in themselves, apart from the Lord, we're not going to find true peace and joy and contentment. When we seek the glory of God, His honor, to please Him first and foremost, then we find that joy and peace and contentment because it's within us, because He's placed it within us. We've all experienced, I think, those times in our Christian lives where we've not sought the glory of God. We've simply wanted relief from hardships and trials. We simply want joy, peace, contentment, happiness. That's all, we're, that's all we want. We just don't want this other stuff uh, any longer. And the problem is that, is that uh, we're not, I think, according to the Bible, according to God, we're not going to find true joy, peace, and contentment. Uh, and nothing that lasts. Anything along that line would be a Band-Aid uh, when we've got, you know, much, much more serious problems. Um, a Band-Aid's not going to, to do the trick. <clears throat> Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That, I believe, should be uh, not literally, but it should be figuratively written upon our hearts, figuratively written upon our foreheads, 
figuratively written upon our, our hands, our wrists, that we can look at um, and consider. For, me, for to me to live is Christ, to glorify him, to enjoy him. Uh, that puts our suffering, our trials, into a particular light uh, that we would not otherwise see them in that light. Uh, when we don't have that perspective that life is about Jesus and glorifying Jesus and enjoying Jesus, when that's not what life is to us, but life is all of the things that we want in this earth uh, or desire from others, uh, then again, uh, I think that uh, we will find life not to be one, our life not to be one that is filled with peace, joy, or contentment. Verse 2. Jesus prays, as thou hast given him, meaning the Son himself, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So the Lord Jesus says here, uh, by way of his prayer uh, to his Father, that the Father has given him power over all flesh. Now, as Jesus is God, he, he has power over all flesh. So nothing can be given to the Son uh, as he is God because he possesses everything already. So this, this statement this, uh, in his prayer that the Father has given him power over all flesh has to do with him being the mediator, uh, being after his incarnation as the uh, one who is uh, true God and true man, that that power, all power, has been given unto Jesus Christ over all flesh, over all humanity, uh, which means that as mediator, all power has been given to the Son. All dominion has been given to the Son, to, to Jesus Christ, over all nations, over all kings, over all rulers, over all powers, both physical and spiritual. Everything has been placed beneath the feet of the Lord Jesus as mediator in Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, where Jesus or where Paul itemizes all of the rulers, authorities, powers in heaven, on earth, everywhere that have been placed beneath the feet of the Lord Jesus so that he rules over all. So he exercises, again, a dominion as mediator, not just over his, his church as king, just over his church, but over all nations. He is king of kings and Lord of Lords. He is the Prince of the Kings of the Earth. Which means that all nations are bound uh, to uh, serve Jesus Christ. Uh, all nations, uh, Psalm 2, 
the psalmist talks about Christ, the anointed, and that uh, all of the earth, all the dominions of the earth, the rulers of the earth have been given unto him to rule over. And so if that's the case, shouldn't every constitution in the world, every national constitution in the world acknowledge that Jesus exercises dominion over that nation? Shouldn't every constitution of the world acknowledge that Jesus Christ is King of Kings, that he's the Prince of the Kings of the earth, and that therefore they only rule, the rulers of this world only rule on his behalf, since all flesh has been given unto him. And because all flesh has been given un unto him, Jesus goes on to say, verse 2, that, he that, it, he, that is Christ, should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So the Lord Jesus grants and gives eternal life only to those whom the Father gave to the Son. That's what Jesus, Jesus says. Those to whom the Father did not give to the Son, the Son does not give to them eternal life. He only gives to those eternal life who were given to him by the Father to save. Because if we're going to say that the Father gave, eternal, gave to the Son everyone, to give to everyone eternal life, then none would be lost. None would be spend eternity in hell. But he says, those over whom he exercises dominion, all flesh, out of those the Father has given certain ones from among all flesh for him to save and to give to them eternal life. That's what the Lord Jesus means in John 6, which we have already looked at in, in many, many Bible studies in the past. John 6, verses 37 through 39, where Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Now this giving... Uh, from the Father to the Son, it is that which happens in eternity. The Father gave to the Son certain ones uh, to, uh, to rescue, to save, to redeem. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, that is, come to me in faith, believe in me. Only those whom the Father gives to the Son will come and believe in him. And him, Jesus continues, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Those who come in faith, true saving faith, the Lord will never, Jesus will never cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me. Now he's going to tell us what the will of the Father is. 
that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise, but should raise it up again at the last day. So not one single person to whom the Father is given to the Son shall be lost. Everyone will uh, be saved and raised up on that final day uh, in glory. How do we, how do we uh, evidence or how do we know uh, that uh, we are chosen? How do we know that the Father has given us to the Son in order to redeem and to save? How do we have any assurance of that? Well, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits. There's one um, passage of Scripture in Romans 8. But I, I submit to you that that, that knowledge of, that we are chosen, that we are have been given by the Father to the Son to redeem, comes from, again, the fact that we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our eternal salvation. We're not trusting in, in any other person or any other um, works that I could do to earn that favor with God. I'm trusting in Jesus. I know I cannot save myself. I know that no one else can save me. I believe that only Jesus can save me. And that my faith is not in me or anything I can do or anything anybody can do for me. Uh, my faith is in Jesus to save me. Uh, so it comes from trusting in Christ alone and it's evidenced in our lives uh, by that faith is evidenced in our lives by way of repentance, of sin, uh, daily, uh, not when we are just converted and we say, Lord, I repent of my sins, and that basically uh, ends our repentance from that point on, but we are daily repenting of our sins uh, in order to enjoy that fellowship and communion with the Lord. Uh, it's evidenced by our daily repentance, by our love for Christ, by our love for his commandments, our desire to keep his commandments. That's how we have, uh, that's how, the fact that we've been given by the Father to the Son to redeem and to save, that's, those are the evidences uh, in our life. And I understand and I know that uh, we all go through, even as Christians, through times in which we may sense that more, more than we do at other times. Uh, but uh, that being the case, uh, that doesn't mean that those are yet not the evidences that we ought to uh, look for in our lives. And we ought not to look at those evidences at merely one point in time, just when we're going through the deep, deepest, darkest periods of struggle in our life, and, and we say, uh, you know, at that point, I don't, I don't feel, you know, like I'm trusting the Lord, like I'm hoping in Him, like... Like I love him and his commandments and I'm not you know, ex experiencing that right now. Uh, but we need to have a, a broader perspective you know, uh, that both before that time as well as what our desire is after that time and to take that all into account as we seek for 
the, the evidence that the Holy Spirit has worked that grace within our life uh, to trust him, to love him, to obey him, to repent of sin. <clears throat> Jesus mentions in uh, John 17, 2, that, uh, that the Father has given to him power over all, all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Um, what is eternal life? Uh, well, first of all, when we look at those two words, eternal life, uh, we want to make sure grammatically that we understand what is the noun and what is the adjective. The noun is life, that God gives to us life. The adjective is eternal, that it never ends. Once God gives it, it doesn't come to an end. It doesn't uh, stop. It doesn't terminate. He doesn't terminate it. We can't terminate it. Not, not that any truly uh, true child of God wants to terminate it. But, uh, but nevertheless, it's eternal. Uh, that's the adjective. So let's just for a moment, a brief moment, talk about what is life. Well, life is, is opposed to condemnation. Life is opposed to death uh, in hell. Uh, life is that which partakes of Christ, who is life. I, Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so life is to partake of who Jesus is. He is the one who gives life. He's the source uh, of life of life, it comes from him. Uh, in the fruit of the Spirit, when we talk about faith, you know, we were talking about some graces just a moment ago, faith, repentance, love, but then, you know, talking about the fruit of the Spirit that are mentioned in Galatians 5, through 23, uh, as well, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, uh, meekness or faith, meekness and temperance. Um, those are again as well what we're talking about or what the Lord is talking about when he talks about life, that the spiritual DNA of Jesus Christ, those are epitomized in Jesus. That's the, that's the life that is in Jesus that is given to us. Uh, and that life has to do with again, um, the quality, the quality of uh, being, uh, once we are trust in Jesus Christ, uh, anything before that was not life. We were not truly living. Once we come to Christ, we are a new creation in Christ. All uh, old things are passed away, all things become new. Um, again, there's, there's something new about us when we became Christians. Now we may be, we may not uh, remember the exact date, moment, hour in which we became a Christian. Uh, when we are raised sometimes in a Christian family, uh, the transition from unbelief to belief may not be as clear as if we were not raised in a Christian home or, um, and perhaps uh, there was a very uh, dramatic 
a time, kind of like uh, Saul on the road to Damascus, uh, where, you know, such a critical time and he, that he was converted. And, and some people remember the exact moment in which they were converted, others don't. Um, I don't remember the exact moment that I was converted. Um, uh, but physically, I don't need a birth certificate to be able to confirm whether I'm alive or not. Um, and I don't need to know the exact moment that I was spiritually converted to know whether I'm alive or not, spiritually. Um, uh, I know that I'm alive because I'm trusting in Jesus, because I repent and I continue to repent. I seek his forgiveness. I likewise love him and I love his commandments. I want to grow. That's all indicative of one who's alive uh, in, in the Lord. <clears throat> this uh, eternal life begins the moment that we trust in him. Earlier in John chapter 5, verse 24, notice what the Lord Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. That is presently. Hath everlasting life. Not shall have everlasting life sometime in the future, but presently has uh, everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life at the moment that we trust in Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. Verse uh, 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. As we said, uh, eternal life comes to us from God, it's the source. The means is through a saving knowledge, faith in, in God and in his Son, Jesus Christ. When the Lord Jesus prays here, that they might know thee. What does that mean to know the Lord, to know God? Well, it's not clearly, to know God is not to simply know certain things about God. It's not simply to know uh, certain truths uh, about him. Certain, that's, that's part of knowing God, but that's not all that knowing God is in a saving way. To know God is to uh, know him in truth as he has revealed himself in his word. Uh, to know God uh, is a personal relationship with the Lord. Uh, I can say that I, and people might uh, use this expression, but maybe not as carefully as they should when they say that they know somebody uh, and they may be acquainted with somebody. Um, they may know certain things about somebody, uh, but unless you are very near and close to somebody and you have a personal relationship with that person, uh, I think that we are 
uh, speaking not clearly about what knowledge is. To know someone is not simply to know certain things about somebody. To know some to know one uh, uh, is not simply to be um, somewhat familiar or, uh, or to have an acquaintance with them, but to know someone is to have a personal relationship with them. And uh, here, that's what's being emphasized by the Lord, and that they might know thee. That's what life is, to know God, to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, with God the Father, with Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Uh, to uh, have uh, eternal life, to know him. Um, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24 uh, is a, a favorite passage of, of mine. Um, and uh, it speaks of this the importance of knowing God and what we really seek to know uh, in this world as opposed to knowing God. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth, and the word glory here means boast, let him that glorieth or boasteth glory in this, boast in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. That knowledge surpasses any other knowledge of any other thing to know God, to know Jesus Christ. For someone to claim that they know God and have eternal life apart from Jesus Christ is a false claim. Uh, whether they be uh, uh, Jewish, whether they be Muslims, whether they be Baha'i faith, whether they be Buddhists, Hindus, New Age, whatever it may be, for them to claim that they know God and have eternal life apart from Jesus Christ is, is a lie, uh, is not true. It's according to Jesus, again, John 14, 6, uh, Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. There is no other way. You see, God without Jesus is a consuming fire. Without Jesus, God is a consuming fire. It's only Jesus that has put out as it were, toward us, that consuming fire. It's only Jesus that has quenched that consuming fire toward us. God continues to be a consuming fire. He, he can't be anything other than a consuming fire. 
but that consuming fire is borne by the Lord Jesus on our behalf. And the last thing from this uh, passage is, is what is said here by, uh, in the prayer of the Lord Jesus. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, speaking to the Father, that's what, he, uh, verse one, Father, the hours come. Verse three, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Uh, is this prayer of the Lord Jesus, is Jesus saying he's not himself the only true God, but that the Father alone is the only true God? Well, let, let me uh, suggest and, and answer, try to answer that question very, very briefly. Uh, the same author, the Apostle John, that, that uh, was the human author of this pr uh, prayer, that Jesus uh, was the divine uh, source of it, but John also in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, has this to say, and we, this is again 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him, that is true, and we are in him, that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So Jesus in 1 John 5.20 is the true God and eternal life, um, when, John's, when Jesus prays this and John records what is prayed in John 17, uh, Jesus is not excluding himself or the Holy Spirit from being the, the only true God. It's basically uh, saying there are many that profess to have gods in this world. There are many that uh, call, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6, many lords, many, gods, many that are professed in the earth. But for us, you know, there is God and there is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, um, and Lord, again, uh, being equivalent uh, to uh, the title Lord, being equivalent to, to the title God uh, as well. Uh, so it's distinguishing the Father not from the Son, but from all of these false gods and false um, uh, that claim to be God, that he's the only true God. John 1, 1 and verse 14, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, verse 14. Uh, and the word, who, who John says is God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 14, 7, Jesus says uh, uh, to uh, Thomas, uh, have I been so long with you? Um, if, you if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 1 Timothy three sixteen, Paul said, God was manifest in the flesh, meaning, of course, Christ. Uh, the very fact that eternal life consists in not only knowing the Father, but knowing the Son, uh, should make it very clear 
that the Son is God, even as the Father is God. Uh, that one cannot know God the Father without knowing God the Son. And so I, I, I just uh, will close with these uh, challenging questions for us all. Uh, do you know God? Do you know God and his son, Jesus Christ? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Or do you just simply know things about him? Or do you commune with him? Do you fellowship with him? Do you love him and his commandments? Do you desire to love him and his commandments more than anything else in this world? We all fall, we all struggle. Do you desire, do you want that in your life? Those are evidences whether you know him. Not only a savior, many want Christ to save them from their sins and to save from hell, but, but we must receive him as Lord. Lord of all, but Lord of our lives. Where we say, what's most important is for me to glorify God. Not to glorify myself, but to glorify God. And eternal life, dear ones, comes from truly knowing God the Father, and knowing God the Son, knowing God the Holy Spirit, that that relationship uh, with not just a mental assent to the truths, but knowing and trusting and receiving as your own Savior and Lord, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who promised, if we did believe, that he, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would come and dwell within us, make their abode within us. Let's stand in prayer. Our Lord, we do desire above all to know thee, to not simply know certain things about thee, though we must know certain things about thee and how thou, what thou hast revealed concerning thyself, but we desire to truly know thee, uh, to uh, have a near and a close communion with thee through faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We thank thee, Lord, for this prayer that Jesus uttered, which is uh, so instructive, and so helpful in understanding uh, these truths. How we praise thee that, that uh, thou hast not left us, Lord, in our ignorance to simply flounder, to wonder, to be curious, who is God? What is God like? But we have been given the revelation to know thee, let us, Lord, cherish this revelation by taking it up, devouring it every day, that we might know Thee, that, Lord, we might enjoy, therefore, life eternal, 
In Jesus' name, amen.